Good day, everyone. Let's pray before we look at this uh, somewhat complicated passage together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be like the people we read about last week, that we would not be lazy hearers of your word uh, who are only willing to eat the milk. Instead, help us to work hard at uh, chewing on this solid food. Uh, And even though it stretches us, as we think about it, we pray that we might understand it and then respond in faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When uh, our eldest Sam was born, uh, I won't go into details, but it was a uh, complicated delivery for baby Sam. Uh, And at the end of it, when he was safely born, one of the doctors turned to me and said, well, what are you going to name him? And uh, I should mentioned at this point, this was at RPA Hospital near Newtown, we were at Moore College at the time. Uh, So when I said, we're thinking of Samuel, I always remember the doctor's reply. He said, oh, at last a normal name. Because I imagine at that hospital, half the babies were Moore College students, children of Moore College students, and they were prone to giving their babies obscure Old Testament prophets' names. Uh, And the other half were Newtown locals with made-up names, with strange spellings and uh, all sorts of things. So he was just excited to have helped deliver a baby in his mind with a normal name, uh, like Sam. Well, even with all the names he would have heard at RPA, I would be willing to bet he never got a Melchizedek. Uh, For some reason, Melchizedek's name has not caught on, uh, even amongst Bible college students, it seems. Uh, Besides the fact people would never be able to spell it, which is one problem, uh, part of that is that Melchizedek isn't actually a major character in the Old Testament. It's not like he comes up all the time. He comes up in that one obscure short story we just read in Genesis, and then he gets a passing mention in Psalm 110, and that's it which is why it's a bit surprising that all through the book of Hebrews, it makes such a big deal of him. So, so a couple of times already in the earlier chapters, there's been these teasers, these sort of throwaway lines we're seeing where it says, Jesus is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, now at last in this chapter, Big Mel, as I'm calling him, gets a full chapter. Now, I just want to say, as we start, some of the arguments in this chapter are a little bit obscure Uh, and at points hard to follow. And if you remember, we had that warning last week that these readers, he said, I'm almost reluctant to go into this because you're you're people who don't want to chew on the the solid food of God's word. Uh, So what that means is we'll need to switch our brains on this morning. But even so, the end message is really simple. It all leads to verse 25. Look there at verse 25. It says, therefore, he, Jesus, is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Now, we'll think about this more when we uh, get to the end, but this is the takeaway point. Jesus is always able to save you, because Jesus lives forever and is always, notice how it repeats that word always, always able to intercede on your behalf. It's that word always that's so important. Nothing can stop Jesus saving us. So even if you get a little bit bogged down in the Melchizedek argument, remember, this is the point. Verse 25, that's the wonderful truth that this is all about. So before we get to meeting Melchizedek, remember the issue in the book of Hebrews, we've been grappling with our gospel teams and here on a Sunday as well. These people were thinking of giving up on Jesus. That was the issue. They were thinking of giving up on Jesus and going back to Old Testament religion. They wanted to go back to the temple and sacrifices and in particular to priests. 
Uh, they wanted that religion that we read about in the Old Testament. And the argument has been, why on earth would you turn back to an old style, sinful human priest with all their weaknesses when you have the greatest priest of all in Jesus? But that raised an issue for any Jew, which was how on earth can Jesus be our great high priest when he doesn't come from the right family? Now, just think about this. I said we have to have our brains on today. There were three great types of leaders in the Old Testament. Uh, There was the king, there was the prophet, and there was the priest. And the New Testament says that Jesus is the final perfect fulfillment of all three of those roles. He is our great king, he is our great prophet, and he is our great priest. Every king, every prophet, every priest was pointing us forward to the perfect model, which is Jesus. Now, the first two, it's easy to understand. The king was from the tribe of Judah. Thank you for a few people who whispered it back to me there. The king was from the tribe of Judah. We should know this. This is the solid food. We've got to know. He was descended from King David. Well, that's Jesus. No one disputes that. He was from the tribe of Judah, descended from David. He is our king. He is our Messiah. The prophets, well, they come from anywhere. But the key is that they're raised up by God to speak his word. Well, Jesus is the word of God. Even Jesus' enemies recognized that he preached with authority. And of course, we know that was God's authority. So Jesus is God's true and final prophet. But for the priests, from the time of Moses, from the moment God gave his people the law, the priests had to be descended from Aaron, that is Moses' brother. And that meant they had to come from the tribe of Levi. The law required that. So people would have said, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You're saying Jesus is the king, the Messiah, which means he's descended from Judah. How can he be a priest? You can't be descended from Judah and Levi. That's not possible. You can't be descended from both David and Aaron. That's not possible. So how can Jesus be our great high priest? Well, that is where Melchizedek comes in. Because the argument is, well, actually, Jesus is your priest, but he's not from the order of Levi. He's not from the order of Aaron. Jesus is a different sort of priest, a priest from the order of Melchizedek. And this is the key point. That makes him a better priest than they could ever be for us. So with that in mind, let's meet our man Melchizedek. So first heading, meeting Melchizedek. So as I said, the only place we meet this guy is in that obscure story in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 14, and it goes all the way back to Abraham. Uh, So this is before Moses, this is before the law, before the priests of Israel. And in fact, Abraham's name, you would have noticed in the reading, was still Abram at this point. That's how early it is. God hasn't even changed his name to Abraham yet. Uh, And what happened is Abraham's family, they get caught up in a local political power play. Basically, every city in that time had a king, which sounds more impressive than they probably were. They were basically uh, warlords. Uh, really. And so four invading kings come in and, and they attack the five local kings of the area where Abraham's family lives. And because Abraham's nephew Lot was living in the city of Sodom at that point, which becomes famous for other things later on, uh, he was captured with all his family and all his possessions uh, and everything he has. So Abraham goes on a rescue mission. Uh, he's, a, he's like Liam Neeson in those movies. You know how Liam Neeson stars in all those movies that are exactly the same as one another? Taken was the one I remember seeing where his daughter gets kidnapped, is it? And he goes and I can't remember, they all get mixed up because one, it's his wife that gets kidnapped, another, it's his son that gets kidnapped. They're all the same movie, but it's like that. And so Abraham goes in after his nephew 
And it's a great moment. He defeats these four marauding kings. He rescues Lot and all his family and he takes all the plunder from these marauding kings. But then as he's coming back, he meets Melchizedek, who we're told is a king of righteousness, a godly king. This is a king who knows and worships the one true God. But he's also the king of Salem, which is probably Jerusalem, but it also means peace. So this is a king of righteousness and peace. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, But more than that, we're told that Melchizedek was also a priest of the Most High God. Now, I find this really interesting. Before Moses and the setting up of Israel, God was not silent. He, He seemed to have priests scattered around the place. Uh, and so this was a priest of God before God had set up the nation of Israel. This was a priest of God before God set up the temple and the tabernacle and all that sort of thing. And so this priest, he comes and he blesses Abraham and God offers him a tithe, a tenth of all his plunder. He gives him a tenth of everything that he's taken off these kings he's defeated. And that's the story. But the thing about the story that Hebrews picks up is just how obscure this Melchizedek was. And that's the point. Come with me now to Hebrews chapter 7. Come with me to verse 3. And it says, He is without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, remains a priest forever. Now, I don't think that's saying that Melchizedek actually had no parents. I don't think it's saying that he wasn't born and that he didn't die. People come up with all sorts of theories that actually Melchizedek might have been an angel, an angelic being who who came from the heavens. Others think this might be an appearance of God the Son before he came into the world as Jesus, what they call a a Christophany. Uh, I I think that's all just unhelpful speculation. The point here is, in the Bible story, he comes from nowhere. He wasn't made a priest because his dad was a priest. He wasn't made a priest because of his lineage, because of who he's descended from. He was just appointed by God. And he didn't hand over his priesthood to someone else. You don't read on in the story and hear about other priests of Salem, about Melchizedek's son and his grandson and his great-grandson. It either went with him when he died or maybe he got taken up to heaven, like Enoch or, or Elijah. And so the point here is, that's the sort of priest that Jesus is a Melchizedek-like priest. Jesus is not a priest because his dad was a priest. He is a king because his dad was a king. He's a king because he's descended from the line of Judah through David. But Jesus is not a priest because he's descended from Aaron or Levi. He's a priest like Melchizedek, a priest forever, a priest as long as he lives. And so if you want to understand Jesus, if you want a a prototype for Jesus, don't go back and look at the priests in the temple first and foremost. Look at Melchizedek. Look at this king of righteousness and peace who is also God's great high priest. And so the rest of the passage is then showing us why Melchizedek, and then more importantly Jesus, is a greater priest than some guy at the temple in Jerusalem will ever be why he is the priest we need. So come with me. Why Melchizedek is greater? And this is verses 4 to 10. Now, as I say, this whole section can get a bit convoluted. So I'm going to draw out the key points. Remember, do not be lazy. Remember the warning of last week. Stick with it. Work through it. Apply your mind. So look for verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, 
Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brothers, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected tenths from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. So what's this about? Under the Old Testament law that came later, every Israelite supported the priests by paying a tithe. That is, they gave a tenth of their income to support the work of the priests. And that was right and that was good, but it was an obligation. It was required by the law. But here is Abraham, the father of Israel, the one who everyone else was descended from, the man who received God's promises. Here, the great father Abraham voluntarily pays a tithe to this other priest. And in fact, you could say, as it does down at verses 9 and 10, if you look down there, that because the Levites are descended from Abraham, he was actually paying it on their behalf. If effectively, the Levitical priest paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And so the point is, this priest is greater than all these other priests, greater even than Abraham, because they pay tribute to him, not the other way around. And so verse 7 is the key there. Look at verse 7. It says, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. We know that's true, don't we? I mean, whatever your views on republics and monarchies, uh, people don't walk in and bless the queen. They go in to the queen and she blesses them. The parent doesn't seek the blessing of the child, not at least in the way things are meant to be. The lesser person seeks the blessing of the greater. So the greatest of all Israel sought the blessing of Melchizedek. It's a convoluted argument, but it's making the point. This type of priest, Melchizedek, is greater than Abraham, and so therefore is greater than any priest that came descended from Abraham. And so surely you want to go with the priest from the order of Melchizedek. But now we leave Big Mel behind, because in the end, who cares about him? Now we switch into the why the priest in the order of Melchizedek, the priest like Melchizedek, is greater. That is why Jesus is greater. This is verses 11 to 28. Now I'm going to let you work through these verses more closely in your gospel teams if you haven't already. Uh, But it really is just like a list of why Jesus is better. That's what it is. It's a list of why Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests. Uh, And I'm just going to pull out the key points. So first of all, Jesus is greater or Jesus is better. A, because he brings perfection. So look with me at verse 11. It says, if then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? So what's that saying? You see the Levites, they're part of the Old Testament legal system, but the law does not make us perfect. In fact, what the law does is show us our imperfection. You know how that's how the Old Testament law, you look at the Ten Commandments, you don't say, oh yeah, I've done every one of those, not unless you're very unself-aware. What you do when you look at those is you say, wow, I fall short of that standard. I, I can't do all those things. That's how it works. Because as much as we try to obey God's law, we fall short. And even the sacrifices those priests made, they couldn't wash us clean once and for all. We had to come back next week next month, next year, and sacrifice again. Not like Jesus' sacrifice for our sins on the cross, which makes us perfect. 
So Jesus is greater because he actually brings perfection. Second point, Jesus is greater B because he is appointed by God himself. They just became priests because dad was a priest. But Jesus was declared by God to be the priest we need. Look at verse 15. It says, and this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears who did not become a priest based on a legal command concerning physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is not our priest because dad was the priest. Jesus is there because of who he is. He's there especially because of his perfect life and then his death and resurrection. And that means God declared him to be a priest forever. And that leads us to the last thing I'll point out. There's so much more in these verses, but the last one I'll point out. Jesus is greater, C, because he is perfect and sinless. So look from verse 26. It says, For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. I don't think I need to expand on that very much. The point is, we didn't need just another sinful man in a long line of sinful men to come and offer sacrifices day after day after day, first for themselves and then for us. That's not what we needed. We didn't need another sinful man doing his best to intercede for God with us. We needed something new. We needed a priest from a different order. We needed the priest who is perfect yet understands us. The priest who truly opens up the way to God once and for all. I hope you've struck with, stuck with me through all that and seen the significance of all that. As I say, we don't want to be like the lazy hearers we heard about last week. We want to be people who grapple with God's word. We don't want to be Christians who only drink milk. We want to chew on the meaty, solid food of God's word. And I do want to say, if, you, if you're struggling with the book of Hebrews, if you sit there and think, oh, I really struggle with that, uh, that's okay, but that should say to you, I need to get into my Bible more. If you struggle with all these Old Testament references and how Jesus fulfills them, you think, I can't quite put all that together. That's okay, but it should say to you, I need to work hard at this. I might need to do the intro to the Bible course when it comes up in in term four this year. I, I need to spend more time in my gospel team actually asking questions and grappling with the scriptures because we do not want to be baby Christians. We want to learn to chew on the meat of serious doctrine and serious grappling with the Bible. But just in case it was too meaty for you in chapter 7, remember I said it all points to this wonderful simple verse in verse 25 and that is Jesus intercedes for us forever. Look at me again at verse 25, it says therefore he, Jesus, is always able to save those who come to God through him. This is very important, Jesus did not come as a guidance counsellor, Jesus didn't come as a psychologist, he didn't come as a self-help guru, he came to be our priest forever because that is what we need. We don't need someone to give us guidance, although Jesus does do that. We don't need someone to help us, though Jesus does that. What we need is a priest to make the sacrifice, to pay for our sins once and for all, and Jesus is that priest. 
And if you have Jesus as your high priest, then his salvation is available for all time. Look again at verse 25 and see it again. See the repeated always in that verse. Our salvation is always guaranteed forever. How could it not be when our priest has offered the one true sacrifice for sin once and for all? How could it not be when he stands there forever arguing our case before our Heavenly Father? Now, please don't make a mistake here. It's not as though Jesus the priest loves us and God the Father is angry with us and God does it. Some people hear this saying God is the angry one and Jesus is the loving one. Uh, remember, God the Father sends Jesus to be our priest. It's, it's God the Father's plan. God loves us infinitely and he shows us that love by sending Jesus to be our forever priest. But back to the point, because Jesus is our great high priest, our salvation is guaranteed forever. But hear this, our salvation is guaranteed as we keep coming before God through Jesus. Do you see that in the verse? As long as we keep coming before God, not trusting in our own strength, not trusting in our own goodness, not thinking that we are righteous enough for God, but instead coming through Jesus and trusting in his righteousness. You see, our salvation is totally secure while we are in Christ, while we come through Jesus. Now I want to finish with the last part of verse 25. It says, therefore, he is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. I think sometimes many Christians I talk to think that Jesus is still dead on the cross. At least that's the way they act. And, and like Jesus is, he did something for them in the past and that's wonderful and they thank him for it, but that's sort of the end. How much more wonderful is it that he is risen, that he lives now to intercede for you? See, it's wonderful when someone tells you they're praying for you, isn't it? When after church you're talking and someone says, I'll pray for you about that, that's wonderful. How much more wonderful is it that Jesus is praying for you? And that's what this means. You see, when I pray for you or when you pray for me, I don't always know what's best to ask for and you don't always know what's best to ask for me. Jesus knows what is best for you. And so Jesus is always, forever, putting forward to the Father what is best for us. And Jesus' prayers are always answered because he prays perfectly on the basis of his perfect sacrifice. And if you want to understand this, look at what Jesus prayed in his earthly ministry. We've got some Bible verses, they'll come up on the screen. Look at Luke 22 verse 32 says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That was a prayer for Peter. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Or in John chapter 17 verse 11 God, Jesus prays to the Father and says, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be as one as we are one. Or John seventeen fifteen says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So I think those realities of Jesus's prayers when he was here, if you like, give us an insight into what Jesus is praying for us now. Jesus is in the heavens praying for our strength of faith, praying for our unity, praying for our protection. And this is all part of that wonderful assurance we have if we come to God through Jesus. Sadly, I think many Christians have an impersonal faith in Jesus. 
We believe in the facts of the gospel, that his death paid the price for our sin, that he rose again and defeated death, and that is true, and that is wonderful, and that is vital. But this passage reminds us that our faith is in a living saviour. Our faith is in a true high priest who lives now in the heavens to intercede for us. And that's why we can approach our Heavenly Father through our living High Priest, through Jesus, every day, with total assurance and total confidence, asking for His help and asking for His strength to persevere in the faith. And I think that is the most wonderful comfort. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that Jesus is our King, but also our Priest, and that He lives now to intercede for us forever. And that he has paid the price for our sin with that sacrifice once for all of his own body. And so, Father, help us to approach him with confidence, knowing that he lives to intercede for us. In Jesus' name, amen.